electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast, Russia offering a ceasefire in Ukraine on their terms. That sounded like a pretty good offer until we started hearing the details, which make you think they didn't take it seriously at all. Oil and gas prices soaring as a result of Russia's invasion, just as world energy leaders convene for the 40th annual Sarah Week. S&P Global Vice Chairman Dan Jurgen. We need to be working together. This is a, a crisis. This is an emergency. This is going to be a very momentous week. And New Jersey officially going mask optional. Governor Phil Murphy. It feels very much like we are on that road from pandemic to endemic, that we'll be able to live with this in a normal way responsibly like we do with a flu. Those stories, plus Warren Buffett's new stake in Occidental Petroleum, and holy box office Batman, superheroes still bringing in big business. People were buying Marvel and paying a lot of money. It was not as much as anybody thought. No, because there's never an end. It's Monday, March 7th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off today. Now to the latest uh, out of Ukraine. Uh, Russia is offering a temporary ceasefire after artillery shelling disrupted civilian evacuation from major cities for two straight days. The International Red Cross blamed both Ukrainian and Russian forces uh, for the botched evacuations for failing to agree on the details of that safe passage. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said yesterday he had seen credible reports, though, of deliberate attacks on civilians. We've seen very credible reports of um, deliberate attacks on civilians, which would constitute uh, a war crime. Uh, We've seen very uh, credible reports about the, uh, the use of certain weapons. Separately, Secretary Blinken said that the United States and its allies are seriously considering banning Russian oil and natural gas imports. WTI crude futures traded as high as $130.50 a barrel at one point overnight. Moscow this morning agreeing to open humanitarian corridors to allow residents from several key cities that have been at the center of the ongoing fighting to flee. However, reports from the ground say that shelling and rocket fire continue in those areas at this point. NBC's Molly Hunter joins us right now from Lviv in the western part of Ukraine. And Molly, uh, on the surface, it sounded like a pretty good offer until we started hearing the details, which make you think they didn't take it seriously at all. Yeah, Becky, that's exactly right. So we woke up this morning to an announcement of essentially a unilateral ceasefire. The Russian Ministry of Defense announced that they would provide humanitarian corridors 
The problem for the Ukrainians is, though, is those corridors led directly to Russia and Belarus. Uh, no Ukrainian citizen, civilian, is going to want to go to enemy territory right now. And a couple hours later, we did hear a response from the Ukrainian government. The vice prime minister said, no way, this is unacceptable. Our people are not going to go. So apparently at this hour, the Ukrainians have now countered that offer, as you say, whether or not it was serious. Um, it doesn't appear to be so. The Ukrainians have countered that offer with proposed humanitarian corridors to the west of the country where I am. We focused heavily on Mariupol. It's a city on the Black Sea in the southeast of the country. It has been pounded by Russian bombardment for the last week. 450,000 people there. The Red Cross says they're trying to get out about 200,000 citizens there. They're living without heat, without water, without electricity. It is completely unlivable. So the two ceasefires that we saw for just a couple of hours, a glimmer of hope this weekend on both Saturday and Sunday morning, were in Mariupol but fell down, were shattered almost immediately because of Russian shelling. Now the ICRC is on the ground. We are talking to them. They are the neutral body that is trying to facilitate, trying to broker the ceasefire between the two parties. And they say really the agreements over the weekends uh, were not set in stone. They didn't agree exactly where civilians could depart from. They didn't uh, have a very specific humanitarian corridor that was agreed. And they also didn't necessarily agree all the details about what could come in, what kind of humanitarian aid could go into those cities. So we are still waiting to hear from the Russians, uh, from the ICRC, uh, from the Ukrainians, whether the Russians have accepted their new proposals. We also are expecting Becky and Joe uh, some peace talks later today. We've just learned at 4 p.m. between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, and apparently the delegations of the previous two rounds are going to stay the same. I'll send it back to you. Molly, thank you very much. We appreciate these updates, and we will continue to check in, especially with this latest news about the potential for peace talks. Again, that's Molly Hunter from NBC. What a difference a week makes. Last week at this time, we were talking about how Warren Buffett said he couldn't find anything he wanted to buy when it came to stocks. He warned that that would change, and boy, did it. Last week, Berkshire Hathaway spent more than $4.5 billion to buy 91.2 million shares of Occidental Petroleum. Buffett purchased the entire stake in just one week. It was a decision Buffett made over the previous weekend after reading the company's earning call with investors from Friday, February 25th. He exclusively tells CNBC, I read, every, I read every word and said that this is exactly what I would be doing. She's running the company the right way, Buffett said, referring to Occidental's president and CEO, Vicki Holop. We started buying on Monday and we bought all we could. Buffett called Holub on her cell phone this past Friday, just one minute after the market closed, to tell her of the stake that he'd acquired in the company. He bought the stake as Occidental shares spiked, gaining 45% over the course of the week and 17% on Friday alone. Of course, oil prices rose sharply following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Occidental accounts for about 1% of the world's oil output. Berkshire was required to disclose its stake once it crossed the 10% ownership mark. Berkshire only bought about 9% of Occidental, Occidental shares last week, but it had to disclose the position because it also owns warrants to buy another 83.9 million shares in the company, technically putting its stake at more than 17%. In the meantime, while Buffett was buying, activist investor Carl Icahn was selling. The Wall Street Journal reports that Icon has exited what was once roughly a 10% stake in Occidental. His two representatives on Occidental's board are also resigning. And Joe, you remember this at the time. He didn't like uh, the price that they were paying for Anadarko, didn't like what they were paying Warren Buffett for some of, those, uh, some of the stake to go ahead and finance that deal. Um, so he had some big issues about it. Um, went from 2.5% stake to 10% in March of 2020 when oil prices collapsed. And now he's exited. The journal says they think he made about a billion dollars on it. Still made a billion, but when, when did he sell? 
last week. It was the last very week. same time. He sold. He sold. But he after filed. the move, it, um, at the beginning of the week, that stock was at forty-seven dollars and things. It's, he started selling on Monday at the same time Buffett started buying. So, stock definitely went up over the course of the week pretty significantly. It's at sixty now, but seventeen percent of that came on Friday. That's what I mean. Yeah. I don't know what's it matter to him to get twenty billion, something like that. An update on the convoy of truckers and other vehicles that encircled Washington, D.C. yesterday. Dozens of trucks, along with minivans, motorcycles, pickup trucks, and hatchbacks, uh, aimed to complete two loops on the Beltway before returning to a staging area in Maryland. The group's been demanding an end to the national emergency that was declared in response to the pandemic by President Trump way back in March of 2020 and extended by President Biden. They're also protesting mask and vaccination mandates, many of which are being rolled back right now by uh, states in recent weeks as new COVID cases dropped. Well, Governor of New Jersey's coming on, I think, today. Yes. Talk about that. Organizers say the plan, uh, they plan to return uh, to the Beltway uh, again today. Yeah, in New Jersey, um, it's no longer mandatory as of today for students to wear masks in public schools. Right, so. private schools still. I know my son's not happy with his college. Oh, right. Yeah, college is a different story. College is a different story. It is. Also, the Batman topping the week in box office, generating $128.5 million in North American ticket sales. That's the second highest opening of the pandemic era. It comes behind Spider-Man No Way Home. Do you see it? Uh, no, it's like no, three but, hours long. But I guess we should have, I thought Michael Keaton, like, well, actually I thought Adam West was Batman. And little did we know that it is so evergreen mm -hmm. and it will never not be evergreen. Nope. I don't think as long as you got a decent script, same with Spider-Man. And I don't know whether we realize that. So when people were buying Marvel and paying all that, paying a lot of money. It was not as much as anybody thought. No, because no. you can, it's, there's never an end. Uh, almost like Jason. I, mean, I think Jason's coming back, I guarantee you. I'm sure. What are there, 13 of those so far? At least, I think. And then you reboot, you can reboot 1 through 13 and make a better one. You do, yeah. There's that too. Coming up, what a week for an oil conference. The world's major energy industry leaders gathering as prices soar following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. S&P Global Vice Chairman and one of the hosts of the energy event, Dan Jurgen. Energy security is front and center. The amnesia that the United States has had about energy security after we became energy independent has been shocked out of existence, at least for now, by the Russian invasion. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm Zach Valisi. The world's leading energy companies are gathering in Texas today for a major industry conference run by S&P Global. Going for four decades, Sarah Week is the largest annual gathering of CEOs and executives from global energy and utilities, as well as from other industries like autos and manufacturing and government leaders. Vice Chairman of the Hosting Committee, Dan Jurgen, an author and oil historian, previewed the event, returning to an in-person meeting for the first time since 2019. In an interview with CNBC.com, Jurgen said that Russia's Ukraine invasion could have set in motion an energy crisis rivaling the major disruptions of the 1970s. Here's Joe Kernan. Few economic topics right now as big as oil and gas, and so it's a perfect time to have one of the world's biggest energy conferences happening in Houston, of all places. Brian Sullivan is there and joins us now. Uh, Brian, already some key developments. Um, What are they over the past few days? Yeah, I mean, uh, take your pick, Jill, and good morning, by the way, here at the Zero Week Conference by S&P Global, and we're just getting started. got a big couple of days, but I think a month ago when we planned to come here, the idea was the roaring 22s. How do we manage growing demand? How do we manage through supplies? Then Putin's war occurred, and now there's kind of a completely different overarching theme here, and I think that was well put by Dan Jurgen over the weekend, which is, are we on the verge of a 1970s-like oil-driven recessionary and economic crisis. That's how fast things changed. Remember, oil was on the rise coming into Putin's war, but that just kind of threw gasoline on the fire. We've had four oil price spikes, Joe, like this in the last 50 years. We had 1973, that was followed by a recession. 1979, we had a recession in the early 80s. 1990, that was brief, a brief recession there. And of course, 2008, 2008 had a lot of other factors, but it also had the highest ever oil price spike. So there's a lot of concern right now, guys, about what this oil price spike means. We know that the world can probably absorb it in the short term. The question now becomes how long are these prices, not just oil, which we know goes into pretty much everything, but of course gasoline getting shots of $6, $6.50 a gallon gasoline in places like California and Hawaii. It's the length of time there. Now, this conference, we were hoping that the Saudi energy minister would be here. He is not. They've decided to cancel kind of at the last minute. The secretary of energy, Jennifer Granholm, she will be here as well. Aramco, by the way, is coming. Now, there's a lot of talk over the weekend, Joe, about banning Russian oil imports. We don't import a lot of oil in the United States, although, by the way, there are still eight ships that are either on their way or at Anchorage filled with Russian oil headed for the U.S., but NATO nations... They account for about 50% of Russia's oil sales. So when you look to NATO taking action against Russia, there is real concern that you might shoot yourself in the economic foot, so to speak. So a lot of questions here, a lot of themes. We'll explore great lineup over the next couple of days. Bunch of CEOs, Occidental, Pioneer, Tellurian, Chenier, some Department of Energy and Secretary of State uh, representatives. Uh, no doubt more that we will grab, guys. So big couple of days here in Houston. So who could step up? Saudis, I guess, could. Is the United States capable of stepping up and increasing production? I think the U.S. is, Joe. I think it's going to take, number one, it would take some time. You don't just put a hole in the ground and start taking out more oil. This is a slow process. I think the U.S. producers that we have spoken to on and off the record would say this. 
they want the Biden administration to sort of bless them, right? To say it is okay to pump more oil because that gives them cover with their shareholders. They've been preaching to shareholders, we're gonna return your money, we're not gonna go bankrupt like we had all these bankruptcies, we're gonna actually make some money this time. I think they're kind of looking for that macro blessing as well. By the way, Joe, over the weekend, there are reports that the U.S. is down in Caracas, Venezuela, speaking with the Venezuelans about cutting sanctions. So they pump more. The Iran deal, it could happen as early as today. The International Energy Atomic Agency, uh, their annual meeting is today. So ironically, some of the great hopes in adding supply now fall with Iran and Venezuela. Not exactly two regimes that we cozy up to. Joining us, Dan Jurgen, S&P Global Vice Chairman. He's at the annual Sarah Week by S&P Global Conference, which has been called the Davos of Energy. Is that a good thing, Dan? Um, uh, anyway, no, 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 scratch that. Thanks for joining no, we, us. We, or, uh, or we would call, we, <laughs> we, we would call it. This I see people Davos blaming is, Klaus Schwab uh, and the World Economic Sarah. Federation for the entire reason that we're in green hell uh, right now and, and for the Ukraine invasion. So I don't know whether I want to sell I guess I won't be going uh, in the spring. Dan, <laughs> Dan, where's oil going and, and what's it worth? Well, I think what you can see is that oil is going to continue to go up uh, and uh, tens and tens of dollars the way it's going now because what the, the supply of Russian oil, which was supposed to not be sanctioned and to avoid this kind of disruption is de facto sanctioned. U.S. is considering, as you were talking before, actually embargoing Russian oil. And so there's going to be a bad scramble for barrels, for replacements. It's all logistics. And um, so that's going to drive the price of oil up. And it's added to it that it's in a crisis that involves two nuclear powers, one of whom has actually brandished his nuclear weapons uh, in the course of the last two weeks. And that Vladimir Putin. Right. I never, never thought we'd, well, nothing surprises me uh, anymore. Dan, let me, let me ask you, did, did we go from being energy independent two years ago to being energy dependent again? How, and is that true? And how did it happen? I'm talking about the United States. Well, we went through a little bit of, uh, we got up to energy independence on a net basis. It went down, and, and, but I think we're back up. This year, uh, oil production uh, in the U.S. will rise by about a million barrels a day. And the other miraculous things that's happened is that we only got a uh, LNG industry started in 2016. In 2022, the U.S. is going to be the largest uh, LNG exporter in the world. And half of the uh, LNG exports that are going to Europe right now come from the United States, which is underwriting European security and keeping them in a stronger position than would otherwise be the case. Which, by the way, is the reason, which that's one of the reasons uh, Vladimir Putin hates shale, because of we compete with him. As you have watched uh, capital dry up for companies that uh, look for fossil fuels and produce fossil fuels because of ESG pressure or pressure from uh, the government, pressure from so many different places. What, what has been your uh, take on that? And, and do you see things changing? Have we hit a, a point in time where, where that might, the pendulum might swing back or are we already going down that road, the point of no return? I think you see it er eroding somewhat. 
when you see what's happened to the energy stocks, it turns out investors actually want returns as well as the, the virtue that comes from ESG. And, and they see the, those returns there. And I think that's something that's going to be a strong theme here at, at Sarah Week. It's, you know, we planned it around kind of the energy transition questions. But energy security is front and center. The amnesia that the United States has had about energy security after we became energy independent has been shocked by the invasion of, uh, sh uh, shocked out of existence, at least for now, by the Russian invasion and the establishing how important these flows of energy are to the world economy, to stability, you know, and ultimately to world peace. Well, I guess nuclear is maybe going to be the biggest beneficiary of, of this new way of thinking, is it not? And then, and then how long does it delay the transition to renewables and for how long? Well, some people actually believe that nuclear has to be part of the transitions, that you don't do it with wind and solar because they're intermittent, they're not available at all time. You need baseload electricity. And what is now people are looking at are small nuclear reactors that would, uh, that would be manufactured in plants and therefore would be low, lower cost. And, uh, you know, there are 62, it's, yeah, 62 research companies and uh, research institutes that are working on advanced nuclear power. So I think I just, you get the feeling it's back. I talked last week to two CEOs to prepare for Sierra Week and both of them in the conversation mentioned small nuclear. They wouldn't have done that two or three years ago. What should policymakers in the United States be doing near term and long term? What's, what should the Biden administration do right away uh, for this? I mean, the SPR is not a panacea. And then what, what long term, what should we do as a country? Well, right now, what they should be doing is talking intensively and collaborating with the oil industry on a daily basis to understand what's happening in the markets, where the supplies are, how to manage them. This is what the U.S. government has done going back to the Korean War. When you get in a crisis, you collaborate and you bring it together. And that, I don't think that's happened yet. So I say that's what you need, because otherwise you get confusion and worse, you get uh, bad choices. You need to know what's available and you need to talk to the players to know where the supplies are because we are, it's going to be, we're going to be short supplies. Whether, whether we ban Russian oil or not, the, the de facto sanctions around the world are taking out two and a half, maybe three million barrels a day of oil. British ports won't receive Russian oil. A uh, Russian uh, a shipper can't get uh, uh, financing to uh, pick up a cargo. Uh, that's what's happening. Uh, and as this crisis gets worse, that could get worse. So, and it also means tight co collaboration between companies and governments, not just the United States, but we need to be working together. This is a, a crisis, this is an emergency. And you're gonna see in the next week, as, you know, this is gonna be a very, we feel here at Sear Week, this is gonna be a very momentous week. And, uh, you know, what you're seeing here at the beginning of the week could be much higher as the week proceeds and as, that, as the war grinds on in uh, Ukraine. And, and Vladimir Putin, who wrote an essay saying Ukrainians are our brothers, is killing them. All right, uh, I guess we're out of time. So long term, you, we, just, we, we need to do it all, I guess. That's, that's the answer. Yeah, long term, that's right, that's right. The long term is, uh, and, and be rational about what we do. Oh, well, that's not gonna happen. All right, uh, Dan Jurgen, uh, thank you. Cheese will be next.
Coming up on Squawk Pod, masks down. New Jersey might be on its way out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but inflation isn't going anywhere. Governor Phil Murphy. Inflation is real. I think those of us who thought it was going to be transitory and de minimis uh, were wrong. This is real. It's here. I don't think it's here forever. I don't think it's like the early 80s, but it certainly is here for 2022. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Stand Becky by. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Up on Becky. Thank you. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off today. Today in the state of New Jersey, masks become optional for students and staff in a majority of schools and daycare centers. It's just over two years since New Jersey announced its first known positive COVID-19 case. And joining us right now is New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Uh, Governor, I believe it was uh, March 4th, two years ago, that we saw our first quake case. What a long two years it's been. Well, I'll say it was exactly March 4th. Um, and uh, here we are two plus years later. And thank God we are in a dramatically different and better place. And let's hope it stays that way. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the mask mandates coming down in schools. Um, this is something that you and the governors of several other states in the region went ahead with before the CDC issued guidance. What? What was it that you saw that made you think this is the time to take down the mask, the mask requirements? Yeah, a couple of things, Becky. First of all, New Jersey, New York City, Connecticut, we were hit hardest, earliest in all of the waves of this pandemic. And Omicron was no exception. The difference with Omicron is that it shot straight up and then came straight down. And unlike the other waves, which were sort of long undulating ups and long painful downs, which means if you're hit first, as we were, we were in a meaningfully, if not dramatically different place than the average American state. So the CDC has a much more complex challenge. They've got to put rules of the road out for all American states. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we were in a, in a meaningfully different place, which is why we took the step that we did. It does feel um, like things are much better in this area, especially from where we were just before Christmas time. 
Um, but because you and the other governors didn't point to hard case numbers or hard situations where the masks should come down or where they should come up, because it's just a time volume basis, there have been a lot of people who are cynically looking at this saying this is for politics because it was so unpopular. I guess the question becomes, are we done with mask mandates forever? Is there a scenario that you would reinstitute those mask mandates? Yeah, first, first on the politics, I'm living proof. Um, we put very unpopular mandates in place last year, and I had an election last year. So I think we've proven uh, throughout the past couple of years that politics are not part of this. Can I say that they're done forever? I don't think anybody can say that for sure. Um, I certainly hope that we're done forever. But every time you think you've got this virus figured out, it humbles you. It takes a turn you don't expect, and uh, about eight out of 10 of those turns are negative. But it feels very much uh, like we are on that road from pandemic to endemic, that we'll be able to live with this in a normal way, responsibly, like we do with a flu. Uh, it, it very much feels like that's where we're headed right now, and let's hope it stays that way. What's the state's economy look like at this point? We're looking nationally at unemployment below 4%. Um, you're looking at pretty good tax receipts coming in federally, and I think that's the case in the state of New Jersey as well. Yeah, our economy, I'm not going to wood here, our economy is strong. Um, our unemployment rate is still a little bit uh, behind the national rate, and I think we're in that cluster of states that, that were very tough on public health measures. But we had achieved the lowest in our state's history just before the pandemic. So I'm optimistic that we'll get there again. People have moved into New Jersey. Uh, businesses have moved in. Uh, there's a confidence getting back in, in uh, folks. Well, listen, you, you can't make light of the price we've paid, whether it's loss of life, jobs, small businesses, but it sure feels like we are on the ascent right now, and let's hope it stays that way. So, Governor, the question becomes, what do we do with all the federal money we were given for COVID-19 relief? As of October of last year, I think we'd only spent about $2 billion of the $6 billion that had come our way. Um, in past years, when we've gotten that federal assistance like we did after 2008, we needed it. We needed additional uh, funds in the years that came afterwards because the economy didn't recover as quickly. That's, that's not the case here. What are, what are we going to do with the rest of that money? Yeah, New Jersey's had a uh, unfortunate history over the, the, the decades, both sides of the aisle, by the way, of spending one-time injections of capital like a drunken sailor, usually to plug budget holes. So that's not what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to spend this responsibly. And we're also not going to set programs up that two or three years from now, the state is left holding the bag to fund what had been a federal mandate. I'm going to present our budget tomorrow. You're going to see some elements of that where we're, we're going to be able to make historic investments, uh, as some of which we've already signaled, such as in our health care systems, to pick an obvious one, uh, but, but both spend it responsibly and not spend it in a way that the state ends up holding the bag down the road. Governor, what about private institutions, colleges that, that still have mask mandates? I mean, does this, would you urge them to... To make masks optional, it's almost as if you've gotten to the point where you're not sure that we need them. But do you feel that they're a positive for for people that are trying to go to school for for kids that are good? If they're not, I would think you could actually urge them to get rid of the, of the mandates at, at this point. Or yeah, I mean, they're they're still in some kind of CYA mode, aren't they? Why else would you would you still have it at a private uh, college right now with with rates so low? Yeah, well, we, we haven't had a mandate on higher ed institutions. They, they have been uh, largely, if not entirely, self-imposed. 
I think you could get, uh, I think we're at the point you could take them off. I mean, we, we obviously have voted them. with our feet. We, would would you urge the, the private institutions to drop the mandates then? Because they're, they're, they're not dropping them. They're, they're stubbornly keeping them. Yeah, it, it, it depends. It depends. Some of them are. And, and, and again, it's not a mandate from me or from the feds. That's a decision that they've made. But I think, listen, we're, we're voting with our feet. We've, we've made the statement that on pre-K through 12, including daycare, we think you can responsibly take them off today. I think you're going to see us, Joe, make a move on state offices where, where we still have a mandate in place. I think you should expect that that's going to get lifted sometime fairly soon. Um, I think we can, again, this is going from pandemic to endemic. I think we can look a lot more normal uh, sooner than later. Governor, you recently issued um, a proclamation that the state needs to make sure it's not doing business with Russian companies because of the situation in Ukraine. What, what business does the state do with, with any Russian entities? Well, thankfully, very little. We're, we're, um, we're checking whether or not we have any investments at all in our pension funds. Uh, I suspect, if anything, it's de minimis. And we will, there's a law coming to my desk this week that will take that to zero. Uh, we want to make sure there are no other engagements with Russia. We have this is a this is a war of choice. It's uh, a, from a warmongering thug, uh, and we're going to do everything we can to make a statement that n n not not in New Jersey. We have among the the largest Ukrainian populations of any American state, uh, and we wear that as a badge of honor. And we're going to stand tall with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in any way we can. A lot of Luke Oil retail gas stations in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, um, I think we have 33 of them, and we're trying to figure out what to do with them uh, as well. They happen to be franchised by local New Jersey interests in most cases, but that's a good example of something. You know what? Uh, not in New Jersey. We gotta, we, we will, we're going to have to figure that out. In this time of inflation on gas prices and just about everything else, it, it is lead, leading to concerns with consumers all across this country uh, about what they're going to be able to do in terms of balancing their budget. What do you tell those people right now, and what does it mean for the state coffers as you see inflation really start to climb? Yeah, I mean, for individuals, it's, there's no question there's pain here. There was already uh, high levels of gas prices before this war, and they've only gone higher. As I mentioned, uh, I'm going to present our budget tomorrow, and it's going to be drenched with affordability steps that we're taking, uh, whether directly at gas or more broadly. Uh, we're going to do everything we can to try to ease the pain because it's real. Inflation is real. I think those of us who thought it was going to be transitory and de minimis uh, were wrong. This is real. It's here. Uh, I don't think it's here forever. I don't think it's like the early 80s, uh, but it certainly is here for 2022. And we're going to do everything we can to push back on it. What can the state do in terms of trying to keep oil and gas prices down? What, what possible control could you have over that? Not a lot, unfortunately. Um, in fact, we have a gas tax that's set every August. This past August, it went down over eight cents. Uh, it's subject to a formula. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see that continue to go down. Um, I, I think I've said at the federal level, uh, I, I like the idea of a gas tax holiday, at least for a period of time. Uh, I assume we've got strategic reserves that we and other Western allies can release. Uh, that would be another step, I would think, that would help here. Uh, but uh, we, 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 we're, there's no, no question what we're facing, and uh, we'll do everything we can. In our case, probably indirectly, as opposed to a whole lot we could do direct. 
There is talk from the federal government. We've been sp speaking about it all morning about banning the imports of Russian oil uh, into this country. And I, I know, at least I suspect, I don't think we import any into New Jersey, but you do in Massachusetts. There is uh, importing from Russian companies in California. You know, New Jersey has so many things coming through, like the Colonial Pipeline, all kinds of uh, shipping areas, all, all these areas where oil is stored. What would this change mean, if anything, for, for this state? What would it mean in terms of trying to reroute the global supply of energy at this point? Yeah, I don't think it has a big impact on New Jersey, but it would have some impact. But at this point with Russia, given what Putin is doing in Ukraine, um, we're all going to have to swallow hard and, and, and take it. This is completely unlawful. This guy is a complete and utter thug. He, he runs a kleptocracy. Uh, he's a war criminal. Uh, and if it means we all have to take a little bit of pain to break this guy, then that's what, what, that's what it's going to take, because that's what we need to do. Governor Murphy, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Becky. That's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod to listen anytime. You can find all our Squawk Pod universe in your feed at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And then you reboot 1 through 13 and make a better one. Thanks for tuning in. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 